So page 12, chapter 19, starting at verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and, enter, and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? Sons and daughters? Sons or sorry, sons in law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-laws thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favour in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He, they, uh, sorry, he said to him, Very well. I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. This is why the town was called Zoar. 
By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulphur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> Father in heaven, we uh, do want to thank you for what really is a difficult passage uh, to even read, but we know that you've placed it here in your word for our good. And so we ask that you would give us uh, clear minds and uh, uh, flexible hearts, that uh, we would take uh, the warnings from your word very seriously and that we would respond uh, with faith and repentance. We pray also for the children as they uh, continue to work through the book of Daniel, that uh, they would be learning more about what it is to live as an alien in a foreign land, uh, to live as, your, uh, as a godly person in an ungodly world, and to stand firm for, uh, uh, for, 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 for your righteousness uh, even when there's great pressure not to do so. And so we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sometimes there are things which you've just got to see with your own eyes. Uh, there are things which you can read about, which you can be told about, but uh, nothing quite matches seeing it uh, <coughs> with, your, with, your own, with your own eyes. Uh, seeing it in person. On the other hand, I'd have to say that there are some things in this world, there's a lot of things in this world, I don't really want to see them with my own eyes. Uh, it's hard enough to read about them, it's hard enough to hear about them, and uh, I'm not sure that I particularly want to see them. Abraham uh, got to see with his own two eyes two cities which no longer exist. Uh, you see, living <clears throat> in the hills of Canaan, uh, and he was living just south of the Dead Sea, Abraham, uh, from his elevated position, uh, had a sweeping view of the, of the plain and had a sweeping view of uh, the uh, two cities, uh, two rather small cities whose names would find their way into infamy. They were bustling cities, they were cities with uh, people, with houses, with merchants, going about doing their uh, daily business. And Abraham had some contact with uh, at least one of these cities. Uh, he's, he had relatives living in one of those cities. Uh, but what were these cities best known for? These cities, despite their commercial busyness, um, their population, their, what they were famous for was their sin. Abraham could see them, but he was not a part of them. 
Abraham and his household, and remember it was a big household, he had lots of herds and flocks and he had people working for him and tending to his herds and flocks and so on. Abraham and his household lived in tents. Now we're not talking two-man hiker tents, we're talking about big Middle Eastern tents like uh, portable homes. And he lived with his wife Sarah uh, and with the many others who took care of his livestock uh, and it was quite a settlement. Now, I've never been to the Middle East, but uh, growing up uh, in Sydney, I had friends who were, uh, whose families were Middle Eastern families. And so at an early age, I got pretty familiar with eating uh, things like tabbouleh and hummus and unleavened bread and so on. And when I'd go to my Middle Eastern friends' homes, I would never leave feeling hungry. Never. Never. In fact, sometimes I'd have to try to escape. <laughs> As a mother would say, Eat more, you know, eat, eat some more baklava, you know. <laughs> and uh, you see, this is thousands of years of culture. For thousands of years, Middle Eastern culture has been, <clears throat> an integral part of it has been hospitality. And hospitality, which is so often expressed through food. It's a very generous hospitality. But here in, uh, we're looking at Genesis 18 and 19 today. And in Genesis 18, when three strangers turn up at uh, Abraham's little tent city, Abraham's hospitality towards them appears to even exceed the normal expectations of the very generous, hospitable culture in which he lived. Now take a look at this with me, if you don't mind. If you open up your Bibles at Genesis chapter 18, and the first five verses there in chapter 18 uh, is where we meet these three men. Uh, in verse 2, uh, these three men had turned up at Abraham's little tent city, and in verse 2, Abraham's standing at the, at, the, uh, at the door of his tent. He sees them, and what does he do? He runs from the entrance of his tent. He falls prostrate before them, prostrate, I think, prostrate. <laughs> I think they're different things, aren't they? <laughs> he bows before them. He drops to the ground uh, because it seems that somehow Abraham had realised that these three men, and one of them in particular, was very, very special. In fact, uh, he, what does he call them? He, he calls him Lord, Adonai in the, in the Hebrew. And uh, he begs them not to leave. He begs them to allow him to offer hospitality towards them. So what does he then do? Well, he rushes back uh, into the tent and he says to Sarah, start cooking. <laughs> start cooking. Now, the, the ephahs, is it ephahs of flour? In the, it's 22 litres. 22 litres of flour. I don't know how much bread that makes, but I'm imagining that that's a lot more than you know, what you'd eat, what three men would eat. So there's a very generous provision of bread there. Then he rushes over to his herd and he handpicks the choice uh, tender calf. He instructs his servants to slaughter that calf, to butcher the calf, to cook the calf because he wants to prepare a great banquet for these men who are strangers. They just happened to wander past. Well, they didn't happen to wander past, but they just turned up. Now, why? What was it that Abraham sensed about these three men, and one of them in particular, that made him react like this? Well, the author of Genesis actually tells us, because in verse 10, uh, one of the men was 
Yahweh. You see it says Lord, all in capital letters, L-O-R-D. That's, that's actually Yahweh, the name of God. And the Lord was there with two other men and he'd come to Abraham for two reasons. Now the first reason is this. <clears throat> what are the things which God had promised Abraham? Three things. God promised, a, firstly, a people. Secondly, a land. Thirdly, a blessing. Go back to that first promise. Uh, a people. God had promised Abraham that he would have a son. Through Hagar? No, through Sarah. Right? Now, it was 25 years uh, since he first made that promise. Abraham's <clears throat> 99 years old, heading towards 100. 25 years they've been waiting for the fulfilment of that promise. A quarter of a century is ticked over and Sarah is now 90 years of age. Have a look at uh, uh, verses 9 through to 15. <clears throat> In verse 9, they say, where is your wife Sarah? Interesting that they knew the name of his wife, isn't it? There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, get that, the Lord, L-O-R-D, couple of letters, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really <clears throat> have a child now that I am old? It's interesting that the Lord knew what she thought to herself, isn't it? And then verse 14 is one of the <clears throat> great verses in the Bible, friends. <clears throat> is anything too hard for the Lord? <clears throat> you ought to <clears throat> write that out and stick that one up on your fridge, okay? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Well, Sarah was afraid and so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he, that's the Lord, said, yes, you did laugh. It's a quaint little <clears throat> kind of picture there, isn't it? An interesting picture of Sarah having a bit of a chuckle to herself and, <clears throat> and then lying to the Lord about it. You know, Why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. It wasn't me. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but within 12 months... She would be visited by the Lord uh, <clears throat> through the gift of a son. And so uh, what, what the purpose in visiting is to say it's about to happen. You've been waiting a quarter of a century. In a few months' time, you're going to start to get feel something happening inside. And that's because within a year, you will have this promised baby. The impossible promise was about to come true. <clears throat> Now, there's a second reason that uh, the Lord and the other two men have appeared. Uh, remember the view that Abraham, from his uh, elevated vantage point, had, that, uh, you know, the panoramic view that took in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, as the three men left, uh, the Lord and the two other men, Abraham walked with them, and as they were walking along, they, they looked down. And to, they looked down at the city of Sodom. 
When I was reading through these chapters, I thought to myself, how do the things which happen in chapters 18 and 19 all relate to one another? Uh, You've got the, um, you know, God's promise to Abraham that there would be a son. You, You know, the visit of these three men and the coming, the destruction of the two cities that Joanne read for us. So the question is, are these all just random unrelated stories or is there some connecting theme? The key, I think, is in verses 17 through to 19. Uh, Have a look at that. In verse 17, so the men have gotten up to leave. Uh, Abraham's walking along with them. They look down towards Sodom. And then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. See, there was something which Abraham had to see with his own eyes. Something which he had to not only see, but he had to understand. And something which he had to understand, not merely that this thing had happened, but he had to understand why it had happened. Because of the promises that God had made to Abraham of a special people. You see, the future lay with Abraham and his son, through whom... God would create God's special people, the people of Israel. And uh, the covenant was that I will be their God and they will be my people. They would be God's people living in God's land under God's rule and God's blessing, the promises. And because of that, it was important that they should understand the character of God You know, there are a lot of people who think that God is not a God who judges, that God is not a God who punishes. There's people who like to think of God as being this sort of a a friendly grandfatherly figure who lives in the the skies. Uh, Really, they're talking about a myth, aren't they? They don't really believe uh, in God because God is a holy God. God is a God who has created mankind and God is a God who will not allow his creation to continue to rebel against him forever. If he did, he would not be a righteous God. And so if the future, if the future lies with Abraham's descendants, then Abraham is going to need to teach his son and his family about God. He's going to need to teach them to understand who God is and to live God's way, to understand that God is holy, to understand that God does not tolerate sin. And so Israel was to be different to the rest of humanity in that regard. Now, remember back to, I think it was in chapter 13, when um, Abraham and Lot, uh, they split, didn't they? And uh, they, and Lot chose to go and live 
he, he picked the best land for himself, didn't he? Nice of him to do that. And he went and uh, pitched his tents just outside of the city of Sodom. Even back then in chapter 13, in verse 20, um, it, sorry, in chapter 13, uh, we're told that the men of Sodom were, uh, were, were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. That was happening back in chapter 13 when Lot chose to go and pitch his tent just outside of Sodom. Well, now Lot is not living outside of Sodom in a tent. Lot and his family are living inside Sodom and they're living in a house. They are well and truly settled in the city of Sodom. And so in verse 20, when <clears throat> Abraham and the Lord and two other men, they're walking along, they're looking down at the city of Sodom and the Lord says, will I tell uh, Abraham what I'm about to do? Uh, and Abraham realises that the Lord is about to judge Sodom. Who is he concerned about? He's concerned about his nephew. He's concerned about his nephew's family. And so what he does here is he now starts to bargain with God. And he says to God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if, what if there are 50 people found in Sodom who are righteous? Will you spare the city for their sake? And God says, okay, I will. In verse 27, Abraham says, well, look, I, I know that I'm a nobody. I know that I'm just dust and ashes, but how about if you find 45 people in the city who are righteous, will you spare the city for their sake? God says, okay. All right, he says, well, how about 40 then? God says, rightio. And Abraham realises that he's starting to push it. In verse 30, he says, look, don't get angry with me, but what if there's only 30. Now, I'm told this is like a Dutch auction. Anyone know what a Dutch auction is? You know how when we bargain, someone starts at the high point, you start at the low point, you kind of meet in the middle? Well, the Dutch, the seller starts at the high point and he keeps on dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping it, and the first one to say, okay, lock me in at that price, they get to buy it. Well, Abraham bargains God down to... 10 people. If you find 10 people in the city who are righteous, will you not destroy it? And it's at 10 that uh, the Lord, down in verse 33, says, okay, and that's as far as it goes. And the Lord leaves him. What about the other two men? Well, while this conversation has been going on between the Lord and Abraham, the two men have already left and they're now in Sodom. Take a look at how they're described. If you go to chapter 19, verses 1 to 3, I'm going to read this out for you. Verses 1 to 3. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. Uh, no, they answered, we'll spend our night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Okay, so these are no ordinary men, are they? 
Uh, how are they described in verse, verse 1? They're described as being angels, aren't they? Uh, they're angels. Uh, an angel, uh, you know, you think of an angel, you think of, you know, some, with wings and hovering around in the sky and so on. A- angel means a messenger. These are messengers from the Lord. Not ordinary men. Um, by now, Lot is no ordinary man either. Because where was he sitting when they, when they found him? He was sitting in the city gate. You see, ancient cities uh, had a wall around them and uh, a defensive wall <clears throat> and you'd, you'd have an outer wall and an inner wall and at the gateway, it's between that outer wall and that inner wall where the elders of the city would, see, would sit and you could go to them to bring your complaints and and all that sort of thing. And he's sitting there because his lot is now an elder of the city of Sodom. Uh, the angels wanted to spend the night in the city square. We don't know if it was because of his Middle Eastern hospitality that he says, no, 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 come and stay at my place, or whether it was because he actually knows what goes on in the city square in the middle of the night, but uh, probably a bit of both. And whatever is the case, he insisted that they stayed at his house. And friends, what happens next results in the very thing that Abraham had to see with his own eyes. And we know the story, don't we? The men of Sodom, every one of them, old and young, they try to break down the door to Lot's house. And why? They want to have homosexual sex with the two visitors. I mean, that's just, that's how debauched the place had become. And in verse 8, you've got to wonder about Lot, don't you? Because he's got these men trying to beat down the door and he says to them, look guys, leave these two visitors alone. I've got a couple of daughters who've never slept with anyone. You can have sex with them. And you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I think Lot's been living in Sodom too long. (laughs) Hasn't he? And so he wasn't perfect which actually shows up the Lord's mercy towards him. That's in a few moments. Um, So the bottom line is it's all over for Sodom. Uh, The angels say to Lot, look, round up your whole household and get out of here immediately because God is doing that for the sake of Abraham. And his sons-in-law, now uh, they're actually not married they're promised to his daughters to be married, uh, but in that culture that's as good as being married. But his sons-in-law, they think it's all a big joke and they stayed put. They didn't budge. And then in verse 16, the sun rose. Uh, Lot himself was not sure about leaving, but God was merciful to him for the sake of Abraham. And the two angels grasped his hand They grasped the hands of his wife. They grasped the hands of his two daughters and they hauled them out of the city and they led them out of the city towards safety. Never again would Abraham be able to look out from his tent and look down on the plain and see the bustling cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Instead, the next morning in verse 28, 
when he went to that very place where he had had the bargaining conversation with the Lord, where they'd seen the bustling city, in verse 28, what did he see with his own eyes? Verse 28 tells us that he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. The bolt, the burning, smouldering ashes, not just of the city, but of the whole plain. Later on in the Bible, in uh, passages like Deuteronomy chapter 32, it says that the, the land was poisoned that you wouldn't want to eat, if there was any vegetation that grew there, you would not want to eat the fruit of that vegetation because it was poison. And how did it happen? Well, you know, geologists come up with, you know, one person I read said that uh, the, the, the bitumen and the petroleum with natural gas that's in that area, you know, oozing out from the ground, catching fire from lightning, well, you know, that could explain it. The passage itself says that the Lord rained down sulphur on the two cities. And I understand that sulphur occurs naturally where there's lots of salt, um, in kind of like salt mounds, and there is a lot of salt uh, just around the Dead Sea. That's why it's called the Dead Sea, because it's got no life in it because of all of the salt. I understand that's true. But how it happened is not as important as why it happened. If Abraham was to be the father of descendants who would be God's people living in God's land under God's blessing and rule, then this is something which he needed to see with his own eyes. And he needed to have it burnt into his soul that God is a holy God that God does not tolerate sin forever, that God brings judgment. And friends, I don't want to see that with my own eyes. You and I should not want to see that with our own eyes. We don't need to, because we have the warning, don't we, in this passage of Scripture. Um. Check out the verses from Jude that I've printed on the back of your bulletins. Did you ever look at those before the service? From Jude 7, it says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. I doubt that you're going to find that verse on one of those little you know, posters that you get from the Christian you know, bookshops you know, with a scene of like a moonscape behind it of utter devastation, uh, you know, I don't think so. More likely to find verses from the Psalms with a, you know, a mountain, a mountain stream. Uh, not Jude 7 with a scene of destruction. But it's what we need to see. We need to understand it. Because the events of Sodom and Gomorrah help us to understand how we ought to respond to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Because it warns us that there is a coming day of judgment. In, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says to the people of Capernaum, he says that 
if the miracles that had been performed to you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. But he warns them, he says, that the judgment that is coming is worse than the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. That's frightening, isn't it? Worse than the judgment we've just read about. But God is also, and so the question therefore is, how should we respond to that? And from the passage we see, well, you don't respond to that like Lot's uh, sons-in-law who uh, dismissed it as being a joke. But God is also a God of mercy. The picture of the two angels rescuing Lot's family, of grabbing them, of grasping them, of dragging them out of the city, leading them to safety. That's a picture of Jesus, isn't it? That's just like Jesus on the cross as he rescued us from the punishment we deserved. He grasps hold of us, figuratively, through his death on the cross. Now, of course, there was one member of Lot's family who didn't quite make it to safety. Who was that? Lot's wife. Lot's wife. Who was like many people today. People who, who want God. People who want to be saved. People who want to live forever in heaven. But they also want to crave after the things of this world. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus says that's like Lot. That uh, Lot's wife wanted to be saved. She was out of the city, but her heart was back in Sodom. In Luke 17, uh, Jesus says that she was, her heart was back there in the city because that's where her house was, that's where her possessions was, that's where everything about her life was back there with the things of this world which she found hard to let go of. And so she stopped, she looked back, and she was overtaken by the destruction. Became a pillar of salt. Jesus warns people like you and I. And he says very simply, he says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife when you're wavering about whether you want to be fully wholeheartedly for God or you want to be absorbed in this world. Remember Lot's wife. Take hold of salvation. <clears throat> Don't cling to the world. You see, I want you to just have this image as we wrap it up today. One day... Abraham stood with God looking out over two bustling cities. A couple of days later, all he could see was smoke rising from the ruins. It's a warning to us to take God's warning of judgment seriously. It's not a joke. To trust in Christ's death on the cross because that's God's rescue plan. And never, ever, ever look back. Let's pray.
Father, this is a solemn warning from your word. Uh, we live in a world which uh, does not take your warning of judgment seriously. We live in a world which is busy uh, with its uh, bustling activities and uh, is very soft on sin and enjoys sin and promotes sin. Father God, we know that there is a day of judgment coming. We know that we are people who are worthy of your judgment. We do want to thank you for your rescue plan in Christ and pray that we would be people who trust that what he's done for us has paid the penalty that we deserved. Father, we thank you that, figuratively speaking, that you grasped hold of our hands and you've taken us away and you've shielded us from the judgment that is yet to come. May we be people who richly appreciate that. May we be people who want to live as your people uh, in your place under your rule forever. May we not look back. May we not be entangled uh, in the uh, and seduced by the attractiveness of this world. May we look forward to living with you forever, for all of eternity, in your righteous and holy kingdom. We pray for our society, Australia. Father, we grieve the sin that we see around us and we grieve the further movement towards greater acceptance of sin. We just do pray that you would be merciful and we pray that uh, through people like us and all other Christians that the word of the gospel, the warning of judgment, the offer of salvation would be made clear and that you would be pleased to rescue many more from the coming day of judgment. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.